Thank you. I, uh, last service, he had me second or third cousin, so now I've gotten a promotion to first. And I, I do have to say, my heart goes out to you more than you know regarding the circumstance that you faced this last week. Because I'm from Thousand Oaks, and almost nine months to the day at the borderline bar two miles from my house, we lost 12, including a police officer. And then the next day, the fire started, and that came from a, within a mile of my house, the other side. <clears throat> and at the first service, there was somebody with a T-shirt here sitting in the front, and it had uh, the words Gilroy Strong on it. You know, it choked me up a little bit because we still have T.O. Strong signs, Thousand Oaks Strong, all over our community. And what that is as a reminder is, is that we are not going to give up as a community. We are not going to let this knock us down. We are not going to let this take us out. We are going to stand together and stand strong and be the strong people that we are during a hard thing like this. You know, Americans are a bit of a strange breed because most of the time we're whiny and complainy. We got it so good, but we whine about little bit. I'm with you. I get it. But when tragedy hits, boy, we come together and we fight. <laughs> Amen. Now, I do feel, at least initially, the impression is a little odd um, to jump into an apologetics conference uh, on the heels of this event. But you know what? There's a connection here that I, I hope that you're going to see when we're done. In the earlier service, and I don't know what Isaac mentioned earlier since I was here, but when I was here in the first service, he was talking about the resurrection, and he mentioned that the resurrection is, is the, in the resurrection, the Christian finds hope. And I agree with him, but something else needs to be said about that. Because it isn't in the idea of the resurrection that we find hope. In the, in the uh, concept of a resurrection, we get comfort. But it's in the reality of the resurrection. In other words, if there was no resurrection, if Jesus didn't get out of the grave, there is no reason for us to have hope. It is an empty comfort that we receive. In fact, that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if we are believing as Christians in a re resurrection that never happened, people should feel sorry for us. We are of most people to be pitied, is his exact words. But, but as it turns out, we are drawing hope and comfort because there was a resurrection in time-space history. Because whether our worldview is true or not, our understanding of reality is accurate or not, matters to all of these issues that we face as human beings. A lot of folks think of, uh, of religion as kind of a spiritual make-me-up. We just kind of find the fantasy that makes us feel, feel good together <clears throat> in the moment. That is not Christianity. It is not what we live for as followers of Christ. And if you're a visitor here, it's not <clears throat> what we offer you. We are not offering you 
consideration of an empty hope or just hang around with us for a little while and you'll feel better. We are offering you reality and a presence that is at the core of reality that makes all the difference. And I hope that what I offer you today is going to give you that confidence. Now, many of you know that I have two daughters. Uh, one is 14, the other one is 11. I know what you're thinking. That's weird, because he's an old guy. And you're thinking, how did that happen? I don't remember. <laughs> but when my 14-year-old Annabeth, I call her Abby, was about nine years old, she asked me a question. She said, Papa, how do we know that God is true? Now, she'd been baptized at six, but now she was asking these questions of uh, clarification. How do we know that we're on the right track here? Now, this is the kind of question I answer a lot with adult groups, but now I'm answering for my daughter, and I have to think of a way that I could say it to her that makes sense to her. And so I, I just paused for a moment, and I thought about it, and then this line came into my head. And I realized that this line really captures my entire approach to this project. And here's what I said to her. I said, honey, the reason that we believe that God is true is because he's the best explanation for the way things are. I want to say that again because it's so important. The reason we believe God is true is because he's the best explanation for the way things are. And that even applies to this week. And I hope towards the end you'll see how this all fits together because what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be making a comparison of two different worldviews, an atheistic, naturalistic worldview and the Christian worldview. And my comment to Annabeth was, uh, was about the, the, um, uh, the ability to provide explanatory power, Christianity making sense of the world that we actually live in. And she began to internalize, I think, the notion because she started asking me questions. She said, well, Papa, how, how do atheists explain this? And then she'd cite something. And then she said, well, how, about they, how do they explain this? And she'd cite something. And what she was aware of is that there are features of the world that are real features of the world that are salient, important, weighty concerns that don't have a home in, a, in an atheistic worldview. Makes sense in our worldview, but she was wondering, well, how do they deal with that kind of thing? At one point she said, she said, why, why are people atheists anyway? Why, why don't they believe in God? And I, I said, well, honey, um, it's because they can't see God. Now keep in mind, if you're an atheist, I'm not trying to oversimplify your view, but for the sake of a youngster, I'm just making the point that atheists are empiricistic. You know, they believe in things that their five senses might behold or deliver to them, but at the same, anything outside of that, no, that's, that's not on the, um, that's, that's not in the program. So I said, they can't see God, and that's why they don't believe in him. And she said, well, can they see atoms? And I thought, well, that's, that's a good question, and you know, you're on a good track, but to be fair, the atheists, they would say, they may, maybe they can't see atoms, but they can detect atoms with their scientific instruments. And she said, and, and they aren't going to believe in anything they can't detect with these kinds of instruments. And she paused and thought about it for a moment. She said, well, that's the most ridiculous thing that I've ever heard. Now, I think she was on to something. Why did she say that? Uh, for, for one, she didn't go to grad school. <laughs> 
where they teach you um, to deny the existence of, of obvious things, and they die for bad reasons. Innocent sees the obvious. And in her case, she was aware that there are lots of things, and as I think everyone is, that there are lots of things that are real in the world that science simply has no access to. Now, she wasn't speaking there of the, of the, the, uh, the liabilities or, uh, of, of science, but really speaking more to the limitations of a philosophical worldview that underlies that enterprise and that it's the core of an atheistic view of reality. And that worldview is called naturalism. Um, it's also variously called physicalism or materialism. You can use any words. I'm using them kind of interchangeably for our purposes. But if you think about the Christian worldview, the psalmist says that the world is, the earth is the Lord, Lord's and everything um, it contains. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, the psalmist says. And uh, we sing, this is my Father's world. So from our perspective, we know there is a God who made the world, with, and it belongs to him, and we are part of that world that he's made. But naturalism says the opposite, really. The world is here, but that's all. can kind of be captured in Carl Sagan's famous statement of faith from the cosmos. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. In other words, the world, and I'm using the word world to describe everything that exists, consists entirely of physical things, matter, in motion, governed by natural law. It's meat all the way down, so to speak. So on that view, it's not the father's world, it's mother's world, mother nature in this particular case. Now, I want to give a critique here, and I want to try to give you a, a strategy to address it. So I'm just not trying to persuade you that there are liabilities with atheism um, as a worldview. I, I want to help you to see how you can maneuver effectively in conversations with people about it. And I'm going to give you a couple of strategies that will allow you to do that. Now, I understand that dealing with naturalism can be daunting. Uh, entire cultures have been indoctrinated on it. The European culture is almost 100% naturalistic in their thinking. We have a lot of theists in our culture, but many of them are deeply influenced by naturalism. So when difficult and hard things happen in life, then we begin to start distrusting what we believed about the immaterial realm, which we can't see, and we start suspecting that all there is is a material realm that we, we can see. But how do we make a dent in that? And I want to suggest to you that we have a powerful ally. And the ally that we have in dealing with materialism or naturalism, if you will, atheism in general, that ally is reality. Now, I want you to think about this. I got this idea from Francis Schaeffer. Uh, he's a Christian author who died uh, in the 80s, but strongly influenced my own thinking. And Schaeffer argued this way. He said, look, at the world is actually God's world. And human beings are made in the image of God. That's reality, all right? Now, if somebody denies those things, that means even though they live in reality, they are denying salient features of reality because those things don't fit in their own worldview box, okay? The problem, of course, is if they are denying reality, reality is 
what you bump into when you're not taking it seriously. And by the way, sometimes it hurts you, gets your attention, right? They're going to bump into these features of reality that don't fit into their box. And so there's going to be a conflict between what they say is real and what they encounter as real. Those things they encounter as real fit into our worldview, but not in their worldview. So there is a point of tension is what Schaefer said. And when that happens, we can ask some questions about that point of tension. By the way, this is what atheists and other non-believers do with regards to the problem of evil. How could God allow the kinds of things that have recently taken place? If your God is good, he'd be able to take, he'd want to deal with it. If he was powerful, he'd be able to get rid of it. But it's, these things still happen, so then what? Now, what are they doing? They're trying to exploit what they think is a point of tension in our own worldview. Now, I don't have time to talk about that particular challenge right now. I've done that at other times here on this stage. Um, but it, that, 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 that challenge doesn't eventually go through for a number of reasons. And a lot of philosophers now acknowledge that that's not going to work. But, but I just want you to see their strategy there. This is a strategy that is entirely legitimate for us to use as well when you see this point of tension. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and what's going to happen is, as I mentioned, is they are going to affirm, uh, often without realizing it, features of reality that make no sense given their naturalism. Now, let me give you an example of this. Uh, probably the most well-known apologist for atheism uh, in the world is an uh, Oxford biologist named Richard Dawkins. He wrote The Blind Watchmaker. He wrote The Selfish Gene. He wrote God Delusion and a whole bunch of other <coughs> excuse me, works that are meant to challenge um, theism in its various forms. Now, uh, Richard Dawkins makes it clear in some of his writings that on an atheistic view, on a naturalistic view, which he holds, and here I'm quoting, that the, the, that the <coughs> nature gives us, basically instructs us that there's, quote, no design, there's no purpose, there is no evil, there is no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, end of quote. That's his assessment. Now, this assessment is completely consistent with his atheistic naturalism. He's explaining the consequence or the outgrowth of that view. No evil, no good, no design, no purpose, blind, pitiless indifference, because the universe does not care about you. Okay, great. But in another book that he wrote, The God Delusion, where he's attacking Christianity and the God of the Bible, he unleashes um, a word storm against the God of the Old Testament. And here's what he says, quote, the God of the Old Testament is a vindictive, bloodthirsty, homophobic, racist, a genocidal, sadomasochistic, malevolent bully, close quote. Now, <clears throat> that's not his naturalism talking. Because those are all moral assessments of God, moral assessments which makes no sense in a universe where there's no good and no evil, no meaning, no purpose, blind, pitiless indifference. No, something else is going on there. That is his common sense moral realism speaking. That is a man who is not, who is living in the God's world and he's made in the image of God. And so in God's world, it's thick with morality. 
And so even atheists trade on these words because they are human beings. So he stepped out of one world into another world. He stepped into our world with this kind of assessment. Now, I don't think his assessment is accurate, but this kind of assessment, moral assessment, is the kind of assessment that makes sense only in a world where morality is at home, and that would be a theistic worldview, not a naturalistic one. And that's the point of tension that I'm talking about. Dawkins is bumping into reality when he raises those complaints against God. So I, I want to talk about that concept a little bit. I'm going to talk about three different ways that atheists bump into reality. That is, they bump into something that makes no sense really in their worldview, but makes complete and perfect sense in ours. And that will include, as it turns out, the events of this last week in Gilroy. Our strategy then is to keep your eyes open for that and then to use that opportunity to ask some questions about that point of tension. So what are those bumps? Um, I want to talk about three bumps. I'm going to call them the bump of stuff, the bump of bad, and the bump of me. The bump of stuff, the bump of bad, and the bump of me. Now, I don't think that sounds that clever, but at least there's three bumps there, right? So what do I mean by the bump of stuff? That's my starting point. Stuff exists, not too controversial, okay? Here's the question. Why is there stuff? Where did the stuff, whatever that is, that makes up the entire world, where did that come from? And I want to show you how this uh, line of, of, of thinking can play out kind of tactically in a conversation because I had an audience once during Q&A where a gentleman said to me, offered this challenge, prove to me that God exists. So I paused for a moment and I said to him, you know, I don't mind responding in general, but the way you ask the question puts me at a distinct disadvantage. And you need to think about this if anybody uh, puts a challenge like that to you. Prove this or prove that. If you don't define proof, you're going to be in trouble. I have no idea, I told that man, what would, what would, uh, uh, would qualify for you as proof. And if you don't clarify this, you can give all kinds of reasons, all kinds of evidences, all kinds of good stuff, and at the end of the day, they can just simply say, well, that's really nice, but it's not proof. So you're stuck. Okay, so I mentioned that to him. I said, can you reword the challenge? He said, okay, can you give me a good reason that God exists? I said, okay, we can work with that. Fair enough. I said, do you mind if I ask a few questions? Now, some of you know that um, I encourage using very particular questions to move forward tactically in a conversation. Here I'm setting the stage a little bit to answer his question. And he said, no, go ahead. I said, some of them are pretty simple, pretty obvious, but we'll just start and get rolling. I said, here's the first question. You can write this down. Do you think stuff exists? Things, do they exist? Yeah, okay, me too. Great. The stuff that exists, second question, has it always existed? In other words, is the universe eternal, or did everything come into existence at some point in time in the past. Now, there's almost nobody anymore that thinks that the universe is eternal. Almost everybody acknowledges that some point, even in the recent, either in the recent or the distant past, 
uh, the world came into existence, okay, characteristically at the Big Bang. Now, I know this is controversial with some Christians. doesn't bother me a bit, though, because it seems to me it fits our story really well, all right? Our story starts in the beginning, bang, <laughs> right? So, okay, I'm going to go with that. So do you think that, and so he told me, he said, yeah, I think things came into existence. I said, so do I. Okay, that's the foundation. That's the groundwork. Here's the third question that really matters. Given that everything came into existence, what caused the world to come into existence? What caused that? Now, I'll make it simple on you. I told, you, told him there's only two options, either something caused it or no thing caused it, right? Pretty comprehensive. Now, what's he going to say? He's only got two choices. He's with me so far right to this question. Now he's got to answer the question. He doesn't, not want, to, he does, doesn't want to say that, no, that something caused the universe to come into existence because if something caused the natural universe to come into existence, then that something is outside of the natural universe. That means nature isn't all there is. That means naturalism as a worldview is out of business. There is a world outside of the natural world, and the cause of the natural world is in that world. Oh, he didn't want to go there. Plus, that cause would have to be pretty powerful, right? Probably pretty smart. It would have to be personal because only persons can initiate um, chains of, uh, of action and events. He, only, only persons can create something and make something. You realize we're getting pretty close to the God word, which an atheist doesn't want to get to. So he's not going to want to opt for something caused the universe. Therefore, what's left to him? No thing caused the universe. Now, I just want you to think about that for a moment. Philosophers do debate a little bit about whether it's possible for something to come from nothing. I don't think it is. We have no good reason to think so. But let's just set that aside for a moment. Even if it's possible that something could come from nothing, isn't it clear it ain't the odds-on favorite? Right? Ladies, if you came home and you saw a brand-new vehicle in the garage... You called out to your husband, honey, what's that Mercedes SL doing in the garage? Well, darling, that just popped into existence out of nothing for no cause. <laughs> Happens all the time. You know, that's the way the universe started, so I don't know why we can't get a car out of that. Are you going to believe him? No, of course not you're going to believe him, because even if it's possible, it's not the odds-on favorite. Okay? And, and, and to give you an idea about how even atheists understand this, and by the way, this is worse than magic, you know. In magic, you get, uh, you get a magician who pulls a rabbit out of a hat, right? But in this case, you got no magician, and you got no hat. You just got the rabbit coming out, right? All right, so, so, so this is wildly improbable. And if we're going to be intelligent people, then we should... Intelligence goes with the odds-on favorite in a situation like this. But to give you an idea how even atheists are committed to the notion that I just said, that these kinds of improbable things aren't going to happen, uh, I want to tell you about something that happened to me at a dinner party once, where it was a bunch of religious folk at dinner. I was sitting across, next to me was the host for the dinner, and his son was sitting right across from me. And his son was about 17 years old, and halfway through the meal, announced to the dinner party 
that he was no longer a believer in God. Now he was an atheist, and he was a bit belligerent about the whole thing. He started saying, well, there's no evidence for it. There's no proof. Uh, it's ridiculous. It's irrational, and blah, blah, blah. He's carrying on like this. Now I'm sitting right across from him, and it's a little bit of an awkward moment. And so I'm trying to converse with him a little bit, and I'm asking him some questions, and I'm drawing him out a little bit, and I'm talking about, um, you know, about the Big Bang, because, you know, the Big Bang didn't bang itself, right? That's my point. I mean, my standard way of talking about this, and if you want to have a little line that would get you right to the point, it's this. A Big Bang needs a Big Banger, all right? Pretty straightforward. So I'm talking like this to him, and he's not having any of it because he doesn't really want to talk about it. He just wants to complain. All right. So, all right. I cut off the chase at that point. I realized I'm not. But before I did, I asked him one last question. Well, we were sitting at the dining room table right across the living room area was the front door. And I asked him, I said, you know, if you heard a knock on that door, what would you think? Would you think the knock knocked itself? Or would you answer the door? Oh, no, it's all stupid. Atheism, dumb. So, okay, just totally brushed me off. Fine. Fifteen minutes later, in the middle of dessert, as God is my witness, on the front door. He's surprised. He looks up, and he's looking around, and he said, what's that? And I said, no, I actually said, who's that? And I said, no one. <laughs> now, the key here, though, is what he did. He got up. And he answered the door. And it turned out there were people there. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> and they were his buddies. Because even the atheist who wants to believe that the universe came into existence out of nothing, that the Big Bang banged itself, was not willing to acknowledge that the knock maybe could knock itself. He knew that that wasn't going to happen. All I'm talking about here is common sense. All I'm talking about is ground-level reasoning. This is not rocket science. So on the point of the existence of stuff, the existence of the universe, the Christian theist has an explanation that makes sense to the facts. And the atheist does not. Now, the first time I actually gave this talk, I was in Katowice, Poland. And I was asked to talk about naturalism because in, Eng in Europe, there's lots of naturalistic atheists. It's a big problem there. I am working on this section on the Big Bang, working out the details, Big Bang needs a Big Banger and all that other stuff, in the hotel lobby the day before I give my presentation. Now, it's in the evening, actually. There's a lot of stuff going on. There, it was a secular place, obviously, a resort area. There were people drinking and carrying on and singing and having music and having a good time. I'm working on my outline, and I'm right at this part of the Big Bang. And, and again, I, I, these things happen to me. I'm not making this up. There is a big bang that echoes through the hotel, and there's dead silence after that. What are people thinking? They're think you know what they're thinking. They're thinking what, well, you might say that what was that, but they knew what it was. It was a Big Bang. They weren't really thinking what was that. They were thinking what caused that. Now, can you imagine if, if I had said, well, um, somebody dropped a pin on the carpet, right? You, well, that's not going to work. 
because that's a alleged cause that's not adequate to the effect. As it turned out, somebody was pumping up the flat wheel of a, of a, a wheelchair or something and over-pumped it and it blew up. That's why the, there was a big noise. But I guarantee you nobody was thinking that the bang banged itself, okay? This is, this is utterly irrational. So when it comes to the existence of the universe, the bump of stuff, we have an explanation as Christian theists. Our world makes, explains it. It's God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That makes sense. Their option does not. Now, I want to move to the next bump. This first one's pretty clear. The next one, I think, is a little tricky. And I want to, I will try to walk you through it, and I'll give you some different illustrations. But um, I want to introduce it by, by asking this question. What is the most frequently raised objection to Christianity or to theism in general? The, it's the most durable and in some ways the most difficult objection to our convictions. It's called the problem of what? Evil, right. It comes up all the time. It's perennial, and it probably came up a lot this week as people are reflecting on the recent events. And uh, I'm, that's why I call this the, the bump of bad, because everybody knows something is wrong with the world. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and this is why they bring this challenge up. I want to show you how you can turn the problem of evil into an ally. You can use it to make the case for our view over and against the atheistic view, because the initial impulse is to think that the problem of evil turns out to be a good argument against God. That doesn't go through at all. Actually, it turns out to be a good argument uh, in favor of God, not against God. I don't know, did I just say that wrong? I said, okay, good. This is my third time around this morning and I get confused, okay. Okay, here's how I normally would employ this kind of thing. In a conversation with, uh, with an atheist, um, I would bring up maybe the most morally grotesque thing that I could imagine. A lot of times the atheist himself is bringing it up. And frankly, you have an example just recently here. And so maybe this is the topic of people's uh, conversations now. How could God allow this? And my, assess my question is going to be, what do you make of this? this thing that I bring up or that you just brought up, what is your assessment? And the assessment is always going to be the same. That ain't right. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. People might use the word bad to describe it. They might use the word evil to describe it. They may say it's wicked. Okay, great. I'm with you. I think those are all accurate ways of characterizing these events. But now I have a question about what you just said. And this is the second thing that's really important. When you described the, when you used those words regarding this thing that happened, were you just describing your feelings or were you describing the thing, the action itself? Now, let me explain to you why this question is important. There's a whole lot of people out there that you run into every single day that think that when it comes to morality, the moral project, really, it's just about what you believe in your heart is right for you and what's wrong for you because there is no big standard for everybody. It's just a matter of individual preferences. Hey, you don't believe in abortion? Okay, fine. Don't have an abortion. I do believe in abortion, so I can have one. You don't believe it? I do believe it? That's all you can say about it. You have your preference. I have my. Who are you to force your morality on me? Notice that statement? 
It presumes that morality is yours or mine. It's individual preferences, okay? Because on this view, there is no set of laws over everybody. Now, if a person says, well, I'm expressing my own view, my own preferences, I don't like killing, I don't like rape, I don't like sexual, um, sexual trafficking, I, 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 and I don't like Brussels sprouts. Really, that's all it amounts to. It's just a matter of personal tastes. But I don't think that's what people are saying when they react to terrible things that happen in their midst. What they mean is that the events themselves are evil regardless of how they happen to feel about it. They don't like it, but some people might. If you like that evil thing, something's wrong with you. The thing itself is still evil. This is the difference between subjective morality or relativism versus objective morality. I want you to see something. There can only be a problem of evil if morality is objective. If morality is just subjective, there is no problem of evil. There are just things that people don't like. Okay? Once again, there can only be a problem of evil if morality is objective. And I'm going to give you an illustration to make this more clear. Okay? There's this wonderful speedway, or I should say highway, superhighway in Germany that you can drive on called the Autobahn. And you know who I'm what I'm talking about, right? Um, can you break the speed limit on the Autobahn? No, why not? There's no speed limit on the Autobahn. You can go as fast as you want. And I have driven on the Autobahn in a rental car. <laughs> you can go as fast as you want. You cannot break a law that doesn't exist is the key here. All right? Relativists do not think laws over everyone exists. So you can't break those laws that don't exist. And if you can't break those moral laws over everyone, there can't be evil in the world. Now, of course, we all know there's evil in the world. We are bumping into it all the time, which is why people complain about it all the time. Why did this happen to them? Why did it happen to me? How could God allow all this thing to happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there must be a standard over the universe, a set of laws, speed limits for the human race, if you will. But I want to change my illustration for a moment. Let's just say you're not in Germany on the Autobahn. Let's just say you're in no land. You're on a, a big expanse that's really flat, and you still got your fast car, your fast rental car. Can you break, break the speed limit there? No, you can't. Why not? Because there is no speed limit. Why not? Why is there no speed limit? Because there is no government. In order to have any kind of laws at all, you have to have a governing authority that is responsible for passing those laws one way or another before you can break those laws and do something evil. Some of you are seeing where I'm going here with this. If there is real evil in the world, there can only be real evil in the world if there is a lawmaker who makes the laws that are broken that is identified as evil. It turns out that the problem of evil in the world is the best evidence for God. It's not evidence against him. Now, we still need to answer that other question. How could a good and powerful God allow it? That's a different issue.
but just limiting it to this perspective, there's got to be a God. Because if you're talking to an atheist who doesn't believe in God, but is complaining about the, the problem of evil, you have to ask him this question, where in your naturalistic worldview are you getting the laws that are broken that you're complaining about? Where is that coming from? They got one answer, evolution. Now that's not gonna work for a whole lot of reasons. But one reason is if they're complaining about the problem of evil in the world, notice that what their complaint reduces to is that all these people disobeyed their evolution. Why do you have to obey your evolution? So you see, that way of explaining it doesn't capture the nature of the offense. I mean, on the one hand, what if your evolution cause you to believe that you could only go 75 miles an hour on the Autobahn. Are you breaking any law by going 100 miles an hour in that case? No, because your, your beliefs that evolution caused you to have don't create any laws out there that you're breaking. That's all. It's just, it's a, it's a trick that evolution has played on human beings according to the philosophers who talk about this, who are evolutionists and atheists, Michael Roos, I'm thinking, for example. Even Richard Dawkins, in his saner moments, says the same thing. It's a trick that evolution plays on you to get your selfish genes into the next generation. That's all it is. It's not talking about real morality. And if it's not real morality, there's no real evil in the world. But guess what we bump up to? We bump up against not people who aren't obeying the revolution. We bump up against real evil. That's the reality of the world. The world is filled with evil. Now, it happens to be filled with good, too. But I have one friend who said if, let me see how he put it, it was so clever. If suffering were water, the world would drown. Evil's real in the world. You know, there can't be a way that things are supposed to be let me back up and put it this way. The complaint is things aren't the way they're supposed to be. There can't be a way they aren't supposed to be unless there's a way they are supposed to be, and there can't be a way they are supposed to be unless there's a sposer. <laughs> How does Christianity explain what happened last week? It doesn't have to explain it. It predicts it. This is exactly the kind of world you'd expect there to be if Christianity were true. The problem of evil is part of our story. It starts in the third chapter, and it doesn't get solved until 66 books later. It, does, it ought not cast any of us by surprise. And this, this brings me to the, to the third point. I've talked about the bump of stuff that we can answer and atheists can't, the, the bump of bad that we can answer in an honest way. And they can't. If you want to be an atheist because of bad things that happen in your life, I understand that, but what does that give you? It means there wasn't any bad things, ultimately. Now I want to talk about the bump of me. And the bump of me is the existential crisis. What about us caught in the middle of this? And the meaning and significance for our individual lives. That's really what's going on here. 
British philosopher Bertrand Russell famously said, he's gone now, but he's an atheist. He said, how can you talk about God when you're kneeling at the bed of a dying child? First time I heard that, it really dropped me back because this is rhetorically powerful. I don't know what to say. And then I heard Christian philosopher William Lane Craig's response, and here's what he said, and I want you to think of this in light of the human condition. He said, what is atheist Bertrand Russell going to say when he's kneeling at the bed of a dying child? Tough luck? That's the way it goes? Too bad? Last Sunday, your community did not call the Skeptic Society to come out and give counsel. It called your pastors. Because the Skeptic Society, the atheist groups, have no answers. Tough luck. Too bad. That's the way it goes. They can speak from their own emotions, thankfully and humanly, and insofar as they did, we congratulate them for that. But I'm talking about speaking from the context of their worldview. There is nothing there for anyone. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Or as Russell put it, uh, the foundations of unyielding despair. It's nothingism that atheism offers. But we can offer something different. We can offer something different to the human condition because God is actually there. He's the one who made it all, the bump of stuff. He is the one who defines what's good to make sense of what's bad, the bump of bad. And he is there to meet us in our deepest human need. He is there to respond. Oh, he's not going to make it all better. Not now. The problem starts in the third chapter, gets solved in the 66th book, okay? That's a long way down. And in the meantime, he is working with us. He's right in the midst of it because evil is not just out there or in that shooter or in people who annoy you. Evil is in you and me. We're the problem. And what Jesus has provided in the resurrection, God come down, Emmanuel with us, the rescue plan is to provide a means where we can be made whole individually and we can be comforted and strengthened in times of distress so that we can strengthen others, which many of you are doing at the moment. But you're not doing it in a vacuum. You're not doing it just because you're a nice person. You're not just throwing arms around so you can give some comfort there is comfort that's grounded in the way the world is structured by the God who made that world. About 10 or 12 years ago, I lectured at Berkeley. It was a huge auditorium. It was absolutely full. There was overflow rooms. And at the end of the talk, I asked the audience a question, and the question was, why do we all feel guilty? Everybody feels guilty, unless you're a sociopath. That's not a good thing, by the way. Why is it? Oh, maybe culture causes guilt. That might be it. I don't know. We can talk about that. But how about this? Maybe, I don't know, maybe we feel guilty because we are guilty. 
Is that in the running? Is that a possibility? I have a suspicion when I say that we feel guilty because we are guilty. What I just said resonates with you down deep inside somewhere because you know that it's true. That's why we all have bad self-images. We know something down inside is broken and it's ugly and it's bad. Even though at the core of our being there's something beautiful and wonderful because we're made in the image of God, that just makes the bad badder. In fact, the bad couldn't be bad without the image of God that is sullied. And so we're aware of both of those things. That's part of the human condition, the beauty and the cruelty, the nobility, the dignity, and the ugliness of human beings. What makes sense of that? Naturalism doesn't. Those words, those assessments mean nothing in naturalism. But in the Christian worldview, there's a perfect explanation for both. And I told the audience that the answer to guilt is not denial. That's relativism. The answer to guilt, I said, is forgiveness. And this, I said, is where Jesus comes in. And you know, every time I, 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 I mention that to an audience, and I've done it dozens and dozens of times before, every time I say the answer to guilt is forgiveness, there is something that moves inside of me. I'm a Christian. I understand all of this. I've been teaching this. Still, when I say that, it moves inside of me because I'm a human being made in the image of God, and I hunger and long for the significance that relationship with God satisfies that being in the made in the image of God explains that forgiveness quenches. We all need this. And so when I look at atheism and the worldview it offers, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, no evil, no good, no design, no purpose, the foundation of unyielding despair. These are not my colorful words. You understand that? These are the statements coming from the foundational atheists themselves, th those that speak for generations. That's their acknowledgement. That's their admission of what their world is like. That is not the real world. We know better. We all know better. And when we we discover what God says about the world, we realize that there's a fit between those significant important things and the way he describes it. And more than a fit, there's an answer. There's a solution. There's satisfaction. There's forgiveness. It's because Christianity is the best explanation for the way things are. Father, it's hard in many ways to talk about this today. So I understand the challenge and the anguish, not just this week, but of human lives. Thank you that you are here for us. Thank you that your arms are open. Thank you that Jesus says, Jesus risen from the dead says, come unto me. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that is not just a vain hope. That's not just a 
fancy saying to make us feel better in the moment, but it is a genuine offer of a real, genuinely safe place in the arms of the Savior. I pray, Father, we would all find comfort there, maybe some today for the very first time. I pray that you would use, as you are wont to do so frequently, evil for good in this church and in this community and in our lives for Christ's sake.